0: John did mention in his prayer, there are some challenges to the text that each of us quite easily recognize. I'll be dealing this morning with the first portion of discipline, and then we will move in and continue to develop the text, moving uh, from where we end today will roughly be about verse 6, verse 7, and then we'll continue next week uh, moving forward on the issue of discipline and its promise considering what has led us to this first portion of handling our text this morning at verse 3 of considering Jesus who endured, I want to kind of help us come together once again on the flow of the conversation here. If you look back, uh, chapter 10, Kind of helps us as we move forward this morning. Look at verse uh, 36 in chapter 10, or perhaps jump into verse 35. And you see, again, this is one extended discussion. We might preach, uh, as time permitted, uh, littler sections of thought. But what is at work here is our, littler, our smaller, I say or a lot, our smaller, as in size, sections that we deal with are a part of a larger piece that is one at-work sermon in the mind of the author. So we're handling it thought by thought because if I were to take this text up and to preach, I've been speaking now probably, I would say, 30 sentences. I wrote down, at this point, two. You see how things grow. If I were to undertake... 13 chapters, 12 chapters of one book, at one time, it would grow well beyond 12 or 13 chapters. Our time, in other words, we would never make it. So it is that we tackle it, smaller thoughts, yet those smaller thoughts in our time together are a part, as we all see, of a larger thought that is at work so I want to help us consider our thought this morning in light of the larger thought at work, recognizing we're not taking out a single thought and then making the wrong thoughts about the thought, but rather we're recognizing the thoughts in light of the thought. So the thought, the conversation we're considering this morning on the first portion of discipline is a part of this larger thought. I'll just step back to chapter 10 and we'll consider it in verse 36. 35 again 35 1035 therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward so this is encouragement to you don't throw away your confidence it will be rewarded verse 36 for you have need here is the issue you have need of endurance So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So the will of God involves a need. That is, it requires of us endurance. So you have a need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, there in that will is hardship, difficulty. You have need, as is people, doing not real poorly due to circumstance, but having done His will is that difficult circumstance. Therefore, you have need in performing that, enduring that. You have need of just that, endurance. Now, verse 37 continues what sets up our conversation this morning. Yet a, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. You think there is a precarious position as he speaks to the audience in this citation and then notice how he delivers the assurance with the warning to the church verse 39. But we are not those we are not of those who shrink back And are destroyed. Right? Don't throw your confidence away. We are not those who shrink back. But we, the people of God, by which the Spirit is working. We are of those who have faith. And persevere or preserve their souls. When he moves in your need of endurance. As the people of God who possess faith. Anchored deeply and firmly in Christ alone. He then moves to demonstrate how the people of God who possess faith, anchored deeply in Christ alone, have endured. Because we're not, right? The end of chapter 10, we're not like those who shrink back. We have faith, we preserve our souls. Like, for instance, chapter 11 this hall of the witnessing community throughout redemptive history who possessed faith and didn't shrink back. Chapter 11, so the argument is that this provides us with the account of those who have endured. Verse 35, don't throw away your confidence, it will be rewarded. Verse 36, you have a need of endurance. Consider the testimony of those who have endured. That's the argument at work. So you're not left in the challenge to consider just yourself and your own circumstance. There is a hall of witnesses that possessed faith and did thereby endure. And he wants you to have concrete understanding of that. Great example and understanding that it's not just you who is called upon in possible circumstances to somehow in your own strength endure. Rather, he provides the grounds that you possess faith. God will be faithful to you. He will be. And you say, but how can I be sure? He says, well, consider the faithfulness of God over time. He doesn't change. He is unchangeable, both in his character and in his purposes. Consider Abel. Consider Moses. Consider Noah. Consider Abraham. Consider Sarah. Who else? Uh, Joshua, Rahab, and then By the way, time doesn't permit me to tell you of all the things that God has done to the faithful. He will. He has. You have a need of endurance. I know. So consider those who have two things as we consider the account. And this is kind of how we work through chapter 11. There are two things that emerge as we find our endurance. We're starting to find our endurance by considering the witnesses that have gone before us, because they have proven out two things that we considered each and every time. They prove as witnesses. If we were to go through chapter 11 again, and I know you're not asking me to do that this morning, but if we were, we would find out two things consistently each and every testimony about their endurance. They found one God is capable to deliver. So, on the one hand, you say, okay, great. So, in difficulty or in turbulence, God is able. Secondly, he is faithful to so deliver. So, not only is he theoretically empowered and could do something here. He is capable. Great. But he is also in that capacity of capableness, faithful to do so? How do we know for sure? Consider the hall of witnesses that have displayed it throughout redemptive history. Chapter 12. So, to our... Time as we draw near this morning to our particular text as we're considering the Hall of Witnesses that we, the people of God this morning, are still in a conversation of a need for endurance. Chapter 12, as we came uh, last week or so to the beginning portion there, we recognize, look at verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Right? So now he, he encouraged us of our need of endurance and provided us witnesses. And then we went through the witnesses, finding God is capable and he is faithful. And then at the end, he then tells us, so we're, we're at 10, look forward, consider these testimonies. We considered the testimonies, we came out on the other side and he says, therefore, don't forget to consider the testimonies. Now that we possess this cloud of witness, run your Race, likewise. You need to run. I want you to see in the lives of God's people two things. He is capable. And he is faithful to act on behalf of his people. 12-1, don't forget that. And as you don't forget that, and you look upon the witnessing community that you possess, run your own race recognizing with those in the text of Scripture from what God has done among his people and throughout redemptive history that every race, yours and mine, individually Adam and individually each and every one of you is a divinely appointed race. It was true throughout every witness we read of in chapter 11 that he is capable and faithful, that they're not running Wild and crazy random races, they're running a race that has, by divine appointment, been set before them. So also you. Run your race. A comment on the idea of randomness would be that you'd recognize the language mirrors God's sovereign setting up of one's race. The language mirrors that in the fact that, again, if God did not so appoint a race, if there was not purpose among us about our own lives, if there was not purpose, if there was not direction, if God did not set before us a race, then perhaps life is a peaceful, easy feeling. Perhaps it is, passivity is the hour. Because again, if we don't know that God had so sovereignly, graciously, and lovingly set a race for us, we would rather just probably sit still, perhaps. Because if we do act on the one hand, we might cause the randomness to so shift and bad things occur. Maybe sitting still and waiting for life just to develop in front of us, doing whatever it is our desires want at that time. Without considering the long view, maybe we will mess things up or maybe we could cause good things. We're not sure, so maybe we should just sit still. The biblical language mirrors much more that God did indeed by grace and has so lovingly and sovereignly set a race of life before you. Therefore, the implication to that is act. It isn't random. It isn't just happenstances. It is divine appointment. So, by faith, run the race that is set by grace from the hand of a loving Father before you. He then moves in the text as we kind of double up on this week on the consideration of really there is always one ground or one foundation for our running a race with endurance. Who is the ground or the foundation upon which we run our race? It is clear in the text, and it's followed again this morning in our time in verse 3. But as we get there, notice in the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance. That is chapter 12, one. The race that is set before us by divine appointment, again, the language. And what, who, who is the ground? What is the ground or the foundation for our running? It is Jesus verse 2. It is Jesus as the foundation or the grounds, the source of our running. How do we know that? Because he is described right there following the founder and perfecter of our faith. How do we run? By faith. Who is the source or the grounds or the foundation of our having possessed faith? Jesus what will he do in this race on our behalf? He will sustain our faith. He is its pioneer and its sustainer. So all the running that we must do is upon the foundation of faith looking to Jesus. He is faith's source, and He is its perfecter and sustainer. What do we learn from this? And perhaps you say, um, you have beat the dead horse until he is beaten into the ground, and we could see him no longer. Because what do we learn from this again and again and again and again and again? That we need to hear, so say I, again and again and again and again. That is that faith does not itself pronounce justification. Faith itself as a thing does not justify anyone. Faith as itself cannot, does not pronounce, you are forgiven. It does not make the proclamation. If I just have faith, 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 gotta have faith, faith, right? You don't even know what that is. It's a really old, weird song. But having it, this idea of faith, does not pronounce, cannot pronounce. We just heard it. He, the person, is the source of from where that faith did come. And he is its sustainer, provider, perfecter. Faith, then, in and of itself, cannot pronounce justification. Neither does it produce persevering power it can't in itself produce perseverance or pronounce you are justified what then does faith do if it cannot make me run if it cannot make me saved what does faith do and all of you know the answer hopefully if you've heard me repeat it 10,000 times at least one of them Faith looks to Jesus. That's what it does. Who, as our author is eager for us, hopefully I'm communicating eagerly, as we ought to love thinking these thoughts together it is not the strength of my faith that justifies me or perseveres me, but it is a person wherein my faith does rest who saves me. He also perseveres me, provides for me endurance that is necessary that I might run my race. Jesus alone, as faith's pioneer and perfecter, he alone pronounces justification. You have been forgiven. And better yet, you have imputed righteousness. The obedience of another is laid to my account. And only Jesus can pronounce that and only Jesus can provide from that persevering grace, you have a need for persevering grace. You have a need for endurance. Well, then what ought I do? Look to Jesus. How so? In an idea, like in a closed room, dark room, meditating with my eyes and just my own thoughts, that would be a bad start that would lead to an even worse end. then, how do I look to him? Faith feasts and sees through the revelation of God given us and contained for us in the text of Holy Scripture. That's how we look by faith to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If we are then to run our race with endurance, we need to constantly be under the influence of Holy Scripture. Now that I have re-preached seven or eight sermons at this point, we progress. Because in the succeeding verses, beginning in verse 3 as we move forward, we are doing just that here. As we said, how do we look to Jesus? Well, we look to Him right here. In the next few moments together, we're looking to Jesus through the text of Holy Scripture, that our faith might feast and see, and that as a result, we might run with endurance, the race that is indeed set before us. So here we consider or look in a particular way to Jesus. Notice the first comment there in verse 3 picks up on the same language that it's a little bit different, but it's the same thrust uh, the apostle of the Hebrews is getting at in verse 2, look to Jesus. Here we are in verse 3, which has been the theme of our time in Hebrews. As it begins in chapter 3, consider Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here the language in 12 for endurance is look to Jesus. Here in verse 3 is the same uh, concept, consider Jesus, or consider Him. Look upon Him By faith, consider his circumstance, consider who he is in his personhood, consider Jesus. Now, what I say to you in the succeeding verses of uh, how we look to Jesus this morning is going to be describing the text in a particular way. We're looking at him or we're considering him in a particular way. By looking to Jesus or considering Jesus this morning in a particular way, which I will describe for you in just a moment, but what is my effort this morning with our time? It is to follow the text, as it says, considering Jesus. Now, considering him, according to this text, is considering him in a particular way. What's the end game of considering him this particular way? It is that it will enable me. I'm hoping to enable you. By leading you to consider Jesus in this particular way, it will enable me, enable you to find enduring strength. That's where we started in chapter 10. You have a need of endurance. We're still in need of endurance. How will we find it? Same ingredients as those of old in chapter 11. Same ingredients for us in this consideration of time now in biblical history. Same, looking to Jesus. How so this morning in this particular way? What is that particular way? Well, let me develop for you from the text of Scripture. If you look with me, I want to read verse 3, 1 through 3. No, I don't. I want to read 3 through 5. Considering Jesus in a particular way this morning, which will enable me to fight faint-heartedness, verse 3. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Remember, because chapter 10, I am in need of endurance. Well, then consider Jesus. Verse 4 In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood or shedding your blood. Pick up verse 5 And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Notice the connection as we are considering Jesus in a particular way. That particular way in which we are considering Him for a couple of more moments together requires us to make the connection between the language of consider Him. If you're there in verse 3, at the very beginning, consider Him, and then connect it with the language of verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you? How? How does this exhortation address you? as sons now what does the how does this impact the text or really open up the text of how we are considering jesus if we put together this comment rightly we are considering jesus specifically particularly in this text as god's son Right? Consider Jesus who endured, so on and so forth. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? How does my role as a child of God connect with me, specifically as a child, in my life circumstances, considering Jesus? What is the immediate connection in the text? Considering Jesus as a son, Enabling me to consider my life as what? A child of God. That is, considering Jesus specifically here in this text, consideration as God's son enables me to make sense of how God works within the lives of his children. This is the paradigm set up throughout the New Testament. That as we see what God has done in Christ, it isn't what we would hear in a popular presentation of what would maybe vaguely, maybe explicitly refer to the gospel, but largely have nothing to do with it. That, That is, that again, if we consider Jesus, all these great things, the paradigm set up in the New Testament is that as we get closer to him, things always work out better, as in circumstances. This is popularly pushed forward as the way in which we get a return on considering him. You know, again, maybe not primary, but at least consider him a little bit at some role. And you're going to get a big return for that. Your, your net gains by, you know, singing a Jesus song or, or, or attending a service, your net gain is going to be a, a, a sunny day. The easy, peasy, the easy, not peasy, I say that to my kids, the easy, peaceful pathway is about to develop in front of you, the Hollywood red carpet will be pulled directly in front of your feet. If you will just consider Jesus, he wants that for you. Okay, so we all know that that is kind of put front and center as the paradigm or the net gain on considering him. This text and the paradigm of the entire New Testament cuts opposite direction of that. That it pleased the Father to perfect the Son, how so? Through suffering. How is it that the ethos of the New Testament by the apostles, what is it as they consider Jesus? It is a life of difficulty and suffering. It is a life of hardship, challenge, as they live counterculturally by looking to Jesus in the text of Holy Scripture. The implications of their considering him rightly is typically negatively received. Not usually the red carpet treatment. This is consistent with our text this morning. Consider just a little snippet here before we really get into it. Verse three, consider him. Now we're considering him particularly as a son, as the only begotten of the Father, the only son. Considering Jesus. Notice here, as God's son, he endured. Hostility against himself. I find an ability to not grow weary, or fight the weariness that sets in. Fight the faint-heartedness that sets in in my constitution as I consider Him, the Son of God, who did what? Endured hostility, but what did He do? That's it. He endured. He endured. That strengthens me, it enables me to make sense of how God works within the lives of His people as I consider what He did in the life both for me and now is working in me through the life of Jesus. Jesus, as God's Son, faced sin's temptations. This is what the Apostle did make known to us much earlier in this epistle. In this book, he faced sins, temptations, and what did he do in the face of temptation? Did he ever face them? Yes, it's affirmed. What did he do? Fall, pray to them? No, he did not. He resisted. He resisted for me, and he is empowering within me that I also might follow in obedience to resist. He resisted how far, how strenuous was the strain upon Christ Jesus? How hard, how difficult was his life by faith? Well, the text describes it to the shedding of his own blood. I want to, for the next couple of moments, well, let me consider with you this finishing of the text. Verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. Here's a thrust of where we're concluding our text this morning. We'll pick up next week. God is treating you as sons. What does that mean for me? Verse 3, I consider Jesus God's own son. And that enables me to grasp how it is that God does work within the lives of his children. Number one, then, our time this morning considering Jesus as God's son. What is it that we must consider about him? And this is a critical piece. We must consider from this text, right there in verse 3, his enduring hostility against himself. Consider him how? As one who endured great hostility against himself. But how? The question is, how did he endure? Can you answer that in your own mind right now? You're like, well, he just did. He's Jesus. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Time out, time out. Can you, can you answer How it is that as Jesus did actively obey, I love that we sang that this morning, uh, that he, he bowed to the Father's will for my sake. Jesus obeyed for my sake. I live right now by his obedience, not my own. So how did he obey? How did he endure? Was he exposed to hostility? We affirm, clearly so. We know that from redemptive history. We know it from the text of scripture. We know that is the case. How did he endure then? By what means? Did Jesus, for my sake, endure? The answer is what it's always been since the discussion began throughout this section of the epistle. By faith. This enables me, as I look to Jesus, I consider him enduring hostility. It enables me to recognize how God works in the lives of his people and how God's people have been provided for that they too might endure. And the answer to that is by faith. If I could just kind of briefly wrap it up in this consideration, not that I'm letting anyone go. Wait a minute, I've got like an hour and a half to go. When I say wrap up. I mean, wrap up just this point. Consider with me, as you look to Jesus in this very thought, Jesus endured human hostility by faith. Continuing through hostility by faith all the way to the cross. Believing, that is the language of faith, believing that God was able to raise him from the dead. And furthermore, believing that the Father would seat him at his right hand as was promised. He endured by the same means that you endure by faith, looking to God of the promise. The question at that point for both of us would be was his faith rewarded? Don't throw away your confidence, for it has its reward. Verse 10, uh, verse 35 of chapter 10. Don't throw your confidence away. It has a great reward. I look to Jesus, the pioneer and the author of my faith. Was his faith rewarded? He who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, by faith in God of the promise, was his faith richly rewarded. Because I'm looking to him, and I'm asking, in my circumstance, will my life lived by faith have its day of reward? Will it? I don't know. Oh, yes, I do. How do you know? I look to him. I look to Jesus, and I see very clearly in my Lord, in the ascended Savior, his faith was richly rewarded. I ask it this way. Did Jesus, God the Son, do you forget he addresses you as sons? Did Jesus, God the Son, find God the Father reliable and trustworthy to all that he had promised him in the covenant of redemption? Did he? The answer could not be more overwhelmingly obvious. Yes, utterly, unshakably, unchangeably reliable. That what he did promise the son, he did deliver. And we sang that this morning, behold the empty tomb. Look in this particular text, however, at chapter 12, verse 2. And you'll see the language shifts to pronounce His reward. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus. That's what the children do. They look to the eldest brother. They look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Do you notice here's His life of faith? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross... What is the joy, the hour of the cross, the joy that was set before him through the promise of enduring the cross? In other words, he endured by faith in the integrity of God's promise that he would be raised. He despised the shame. And then here is the overwhelming yes affirmative that God did fulfill the promise that Jesus' faith was rewarded. The last section of verse 2. And, notice the language, the tense there. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is currently... At the right hand of God the Father, just as was promised him, he does reign. Look back to chapter 2 real quick, just as a quick cross-reference, as this is what our author has been getting at for a long time. Beginning in chapter 2, just drop down if you would to see exactly this kind of language fleshed out much earlier as we're addressing it now Covering this section of as we consider Jesus, it enables us to fight weariness and faint-heartedness as we consider suffering in our own turbulent lives. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, recounting this Jesus, namely Jesus. Notice who he is. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. This was the joy that was set before him, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. That's astounding. In bringing many sons to glory, That's his joy. That's what was set before him. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Back in our text then this morning, The next question we must ask considering Jesus' life of faith as we consider our own life of faith, as we consider Him, and not throwing away our confidence, but recognizing as was with Christ, our faith does have its reward. The question is this, and it's a little bit applicational now as we narrow down our time. What do we, real brass tacks here, what do we, you and I, learn about our individual life circumstances? As we consider Jesus as the Son of God who endured open and brutal hostility, what do we learn about our own turbulent existence as we consider jesus the eldest son the brother of the many as we look to jesus as we consider him we know he endured open and brutal hostility what does that speak of in our lives the answer for me as i hope to show you is twofold the answer is twofold there are many more implications I could stay here and list them and keep going, but I know that's not really what you want for the next nine hours. So if I could narrow down my time with you to the two that stand out from this text for me, and what is it that Adam can learn about his own turbulence, about his own challenges as I obey the text, and that is look by faith to Jesus. What do I learn? Number one, I learn number one, God designs suffering For his children. This is the clear implication and teaching that keeps us within the author's illustration, if you were here last week, of a race that is set before us. I introduced it that way in my time with you at the very beginning this concept of, again, divine appointment as we look to Jesus the Son who endured open hostility, we recognize that's not an anomaly. That isn't some weird redemptive occurrence. We recognize it is how the Father works His glory and your good. It is through suffering. I recognize my pastoral pace needs to calm and change at this moment because I could sit here in America and largely speak on suffering and I am not held up by ISIL, ISIS on a mountain somewhere currently receiving food from medevac helicopters and bombers that fly overhead. So I recognize that at this moment it is challenging to speak on these things to us. So I could scream and holler as I typically do about whatever I'm talking about. On the issue of suffering. I think sobriety and and, uh, uh, a little bit more um, honesty about our current situation uh, would be wise. But again, it's not that we must experience suffering to recognize by faith from the text of Holy Scripture. That it is in different degrees and in different life circumstances that we will, each one of us, face what the Bible does say is suffering. Perhaps some of you have already experienced far greater than I in my life, in my experiences, what would be a very fair assessment of suffering so that we're careful, yet we also are careful not to think the only way to suffer is to be held up on a mountainside somewhere in Iraq. There are other complications that we face. There are other hardships that we go through, That the Bible would also be a keen word, that that too also is suffering in measure. So I trust that by faith you're analyzing by faith before the Lord what it is in your life that is currently what you would consider to be. Perhaps not this grand statement that you are a paradigm of suffering. Yet there is difficulty that is real to you, very meaningful to you, very real to me, very meaningful to me that we are instructed to do likewise, whether we are on the side of a mountain or we are experiencing a drought in the, in, in, in the checking account. We're to do the same. Look to Jesus. Recognizing that God designed this hardship for His glory and by faith I embrace my good. We must remember in a statement like that and the idea that God designed suffering for His children is that we are not deists. We are not. This is not a confessional body of deists. And we need to train our minds to recognize through the text of Scripture that God is active and at work in our lives every day. That is, that he did not start our lives by grace, and yet he has left us to finish our own race as the world goes round. We don't believe that. God did start our life in Christ by grace, and he is actively furthering it by grace every moment of every day. Secondly, the second thing we learn. So one, we recognize by looking to Jesus as God's very own son who endured open hostility. We recognize as we consider him as the son, we recognize that God designs suffering for his children, for his glory and our good, and those two things are largely one and the same. Number two, God proves faithful to his children, in the, and this, this is important. These three modes, I hope, uh, will be strengthening to you as I speak again at a point where maybe many of us in this room are thinking, I'm not in suffering. This might apply. God proves faithful to his children in the preparing for, in the enduring of, and in the life beyond the suffering. That's what we hear out of John's revelation. He describes himself as a God who was, God who is, and the God who is to come. He's not showing up Johnny on the spot when things hit the fan. He has been at work preparing you as your faith is being fed on Jesus through the word. He is preparing you for he is faithful to his children as we consider the life of Jesus preparing them for in the endurance of and life well beyond the suffering michael horton comments this way about life's trials i just read a little extended portion here as we conclude our time he wrote a small little book our our small group is going through right now on this topic of suffering and it is entitled a place for weakness preparing yourself for suffering he speaks this way i think it'll be helpful to you trials come in all sizes and shapes they target our conscience. They target our hopes and dreams. They target our expectations of how life works. Hey, I, I'm like this. It ought to be going like that. The trial is somehow targeting this consideration in my life of how life works. They target our confidence in God and his purposes. That's what they do. Our faith, he goes on to say, is tested. But Why? Why, 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 why? This is excellent. In order that we become less confident in the future on its own terms, and we become more confident. In the God who holds it and holds us in his hand. The trials make all the difference. If I were to consider our time this morning, then together, we are exhorted here. Perhaps you are in the stage of preparing for a very difficult providence. Perhaps you are in the midst of a very difficult providence. What we're all doing is supposed to be the same. By faith, considering Jesus. Because this text is clear that by considering Jesus, We are enabled to see that God is faithful to his children. This consideration of our Lord will fight what the text is trying to help us fight, weariness of soul. It will fuel our faith to lay hold of God of the promise doing away by grace with faint-heartedness at life's turbulence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your text this morning. We would ask that you would overcome our unbelief, those areas where our faith is not rightly feasting, where we are finding our footing very unsure because we are finding and trying to root our confidence in the future on its own terms, almost deist-like random events that hopefully good luck and fortune do pass our way. And when things begin to unravel, we grow gravely concerned and we turn the other way. We don't feed our faith on the text coming back to considering Jesus. So, Lord, undo our confidence that it might rest squarely in Jesus alone.